Welcome to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My name is Jonathan Edwards, and I serve as a pastor at the Grace Brethren Chapel located in Northwest Ohio. The goal of this podcast is to teach God's truth and how to apply it accurately to one's life so that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed as you contemplate God's word. Greetings, saints and fellow bond slaves of Jesus Christ. It's great to be back with you on another episode of the podcast today. We're going to begin a series of episodes today. I'm not sure exactly how long this series is going to be, but I think I mentioned to you earlier this year that I was working on a paper to present to uh, my fellow pastors on the Christian and his relationship to culture and the way that he engages culture. And I've written that paper and presented it, and we've had some really thought-provoking discussions amongst the elders regarding that particular paper. And I wanted to share some of the thoughts from that with you, some of the things that have kind of stuck out to me. And I think that as we consider just the the hour that we are in, in our present day culture, and I'm obviously coming to you from United States of America. So if you're listening from another country, uh, understand that I'm thinking of this from maybe a, a perspective that is U.S.-based. However, I think what I'm trying to present are biblical realities that are cross-cultural in nature. So the things that we talk about and how to present ideas and truth in the United States should be transferable to how you engage your culture, whether you live in Europe, Africa, um, maybe you live somewhere in the, the Middle East or the Far East. You know, whatever culture that you live in, the, the truth of Scripture applies to you. And so the goal is, as an expositor of the Word of God, to draw out the principles from the text that are the general truths that God has revealed about how we relate to the culture that we live in, okay? Now, as I think about the Christian and his relationship with culture, I would say that if I'm looking at church history, there are a number of perspectives on how Christians should have engaged the culture from a, from a historical perspective, like, or there have been a number of examples of how Christians have done that from a historical perspective. So I'm not going to try to give an exhaustive history of this, but I'm just going to start off with what I observe presently in 21st century America, current to the year 2023. Then I'm going to talk about a few things that are maybe a few years behind 2023, and then some other historical examples, okay? So I think, and you have to understand, I come from what would be known as an evangelical background, conservative evangelical. I believe that the Bible is the literal Word of God, that it has been preserved through God's providence, that the Bible is infallible. I believe that the correct way to interpret or the correct method of interpreting the Scriptures is through a literal, grammatical, historical understanding of the text. So I may be coming at the text from a different mode or method of interpretation than you, the listener. But I think it's very important for you to understand this This is how I approach the text. This is the framework of reference that I have. And these are the things that I've noticed people who are either in my camp or who are adjacent to my camp. This is how they relate to and think about 
engaging the culture in matters of spirituality, okay? So I would say this. Over the last 15 years, um, there has been a, a kind of a push within the Christian community to be winsome in your relationship to the culture, to be winsome in your relationship. This means that you're going to have an appropriate tone of voice. You're going to say things that aren't polemic in nature. You're going to be kind. You're going to be um, kind of unimposing. You're going to just kind of like, I'm speaking the Word of God softly so that you'll hear it, and then you'll respond. Okay, and the basic idea of this is that the way we engage people or the way that we speak into culture is that we have to be nice in order for them to listen to us and for us to have a seat at the table. This is one track, um, and I think that people who believe this are well-meaning. I would say that in general, I would try to be a winsome person as I talk to unbelievers. I'm not sure that winsome is the right action all the time, but that's one way that people have related to the culture or tried to speak into the culture in recent years. So that's the evangelical camp. Another camp, which I would say um, is the, the traditional Protestant mainline denomination camp, the Protestant camp has basically for a hundred years or more had an attitude of affirming whatever the culture is doing. So in other words, if the culture thinks that caring for the orphans and caring for widows or reaching out to those who are downtrodden and needy, if they think, if the culture thinks that that's the most important thing, then the traditional Protestant mainline churches will basically put a Christian spin on the culture's issues, okay? A Christian spin on the culture's issues. And a hundred years ago, this was called the, the social gospel, all right? The social gospel basically was a movement that said, you know, in order to actually reach people, okay, in order to reach people, we have to meet their felt needs, we have to care for them, so that then they're possibly willing to listen to the things that we have to say. So I think winsome is kind of like the, the attitude of the social gospel without the social gospel part of it. Okay, that's a little bit how winsome is. And, and again, I'm not saying it's wrong to be winsome. Just know that this is one of the ways that people relate. Now, let's, let's fast forward again to the present day. I said the mainline churches, the mainline Protestant denominations, have an affirming attitude towards the culture. And you can see this today because nearly every mainline denomination church um, panic, um, let me think, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, the United Methodists, and they just had a big split over this, uh, and, and, and many other churches, okay, and, and denominations that are Anglican, okay, for example, many of these denominations are affirming of the direction that the culture is going. So if right now in the United States in 2023, there is an incredible push by the forces in our culture, the elite thinkers, to accept an LGBTQ lifestyle as a normative way of living. They don't want to say it's sinful. It's just a normative way of living. And transgenderism is also especially a normative way of living. And, you know, the shirt that I see that's most popular now is like trans rights are human rights. And 
I just fundamentally disagree with that because I think it's scripturally incorrect. But the mainline denominations, they are all affirming of this way of relating to the culture. And so they just take the culture's ideas, they dress it up with some Bible verses, they attach Jesus's name to it, which is blasphemous, of course, and then they say, well, here's how we relate to the culture. Here's how we relate to the culture. All right? That's one of the—those are two of the main ways that Christians engage the culture or attempt to engage the culture to be winsome or to be affirming. Now, there's another group of Christians that's uh, present today and I think has been present historically, which is isolationism. The isolationists, they believe that, uh, you know, you, you just don't have anything to do with culture. Our responsibility is the church. Our responsibility is the, the flock of Jesus Christ— we're keeping track of the sheep, and so whatever's happening in the culture, we're just not going to worry about that, or we're going to be fearful of it, we're going to preach against it in our own congregation, but we're not really doing much to try to make anything change in the culture. All right, uh, uh, in in conjunction with this, or in a similar vein to this, is a, a group of Christians who would just largely ignore the culture. You know, whatever happens in the culture doesn't matter. Hey, we're we're worried about uh, preaching the gospel. We're worried about making disciples. And so whatever happens in the culture is just totally insignificant to me. I don't have time to think about that. I don't have time to deal with that. Uh, and so they just go on and do what they're going to do. And their focus, again, is much like the isolationists, but they're a little bit better because at least they're saying, well, we need to preach the gospel. That's the primary way to relate to the culture. They're not worried about changing the culture, but they're worried about, like, changing hearts, all right? So, good. That's good. Um, And I'm sure there's more nuance to these. There's more categories. I'm just trying to lay out some of the different views that I've observed as I've studied history, as I've watched different Christian groups over the last 20 or 30 years. So, overpowering and domineering. Now, this is a very historical perspective. This is a very this this was, when we talk about an overpowering or domineering relationship to culture, we're really looking at uh, what what are we going to do to make everything Christian, all right? This is kind of like the marriage of the church and state. This is how most of Europe was from about 1200, roughly 12, 11 or 1200, to um, not even the Protestant Reformation, but on through the Protestant Reformation until really about the 1700s. Okay, so you're looking at a four to 500-year time period where the primary way that Christians related to the culture was by joining with the state. So the church and the state joined together, and they coerced belief in conformity with church regulations and rules. Now, this obviously... Um, the church regulations and rules that are being described, that I'm just referring to, are extra-biblical. They're things that were not found in the Scriptures. All right, And it's irregardless, this is done irregardless of whether somebody has made a profession of faith or not. This is just done because, look, we're the church, we're the state, our interests align to maintain power, to maintain authority, and so we are going to come together and we are going to make rules, and the church is going to enforce the state's rules, and the state is going to enforce the church's rules, and they have this very symbiotic relationship whereby they domineer and overpower every aspect of culture. Uh, this is 
what led to the persecution of the Anabaptists. It led to the persecution of the Puritans. It's one of the reasons why the Puritans fled England and fled uh, continental Europe, so that they could get away from the overpowering and domineering aspects of the church-state relationship. And it is also why, in the United States, one of the fundamental one of the fundamental principles found in the Bill of Rights is that the state should not endorse a state church. So we have what's known as the separation clause, and the church and state have to be separate, and that was to prevent this joining forces of the church and state to basically domineer and overpower the people. Now, I would say that in the United States, because we have become so secular, we've become so um, anti-biblical, we have an unreasonable fear about this particular reality happening again, that Christian thought, Christian ideas, uh, let me just say it a little broader, Judeo-Christian thought and Judeo-Christian ideas have been basically banished from the public sphere of conversation. You can, you can talk about philosophy, you can talk about morality, you can talk about um, how do we define laws, what are the best ways for us to go about legislating or, or creating legislation that will benefit all of, all of the society, but you basically are not allowed to adopt a Judeo-Christian perspective and enter that into the public arena in the present day. And the reason for this, in my opinion, is that the secularists, those who are unbelievers, uh, they have an unreasonable fear of the church and state coming together and, and doing what happened in, you know, from 1200 to 1700 or 1800. They have an unreasonable fear of that. They think, they think that, well, the time for the church is over. We are, we are post-Christian. We, we have evolved past thinking that we need a Christian God. And the reality is, while they think that they've moved past needing the Christian God, they actually do need the Christian God. They don't recognize that they're worshiping a God of their own design. They have established a morality of their own design. They are doing things according to their master, Satan, and he is driving their car. He's driving the ship. He's driving the bus. Okay, He is directing them towards that which is anti-God. It is anti-truth. And so they are basically trying to create for themselves this alternate reality where they pretend that Judeo-Christian thought doesn't exist, that Judeo-Christian morals and morality doesn't exist and is not important and doesn't deserve a place at the table. This is why, of course, over the last 10, 10 to 15 years, we've seen lawsuits brought against Christians who try to bring a Judeo-Christian perspective into the public sphere, especially the school system. So um, last year or the year before, I think it was two years ago, there was a football coach who would just pray at the end of every football game. And he was praying. He didn't coerce anybody to come pray with him, but it turned out that a number of the players from both teams ended up joining this prayer at the end of the game, and it was done at midfield, so it was in a public place. It was on public-funded property, which is a school, uh, the school field. 
and uh, he was he was uh, charged with trying to manipulate or interfere with the separation clause of the Constitution. Now, it turns out that the Supreme Court um, sided with him and said that he did have the right to speak these ideas in the public square, to communicate these truths in the public square. So that was good. But the fact that so many people wanted to see him fail, wanted to see him not be able to exercise his own religious expression in the public sphere specifically because it was a Christian expression and specifically because it evoked the person, Jesus Christ. That is what is revealing. It's very revealing because it shows you the hatred that these people have, the secularists. It shows you the hatred that they have for Jesus Christ and the teachings of Jesus Christ. All right, so, you know, we have all these kind of ways to engage or have a relationship with culture. I think some questions that we need to ask as Christians are, what does the Bible say about how we engage culture? Or here's a better question, should we even engage culture? Does the Bible give us any direction on what to do as we live in the land? Okay, how do we live in the land? You know, Israel Israel was positioned uniquely as a nation that was favored by God. They had their own national and ethnic identity. They had national borders. They had a theocracy. They had a law that was given to them directly by God. They were established to be an example to the Gentile nations around them, but they were also used as God's arm of judgment against the Gentile nations for the wickedness and the rebellion that those nations committed against Israel. I'm sorry, not against Israel, against Yahweh, okay? Because those nations broke Yahweh's laws. They had violated the principles that God established from the very beginning in Genesis. And so, because of their wickedness, they needed to be judged. And the judgment was destruction. All right, so it's very easy to see in the Old Testament how Israel was set up to have a particular cultural, ethnic, and religious, and also political identity, as established by Yahweh himself through the law of Moses and through the providence of God, really the, mirac- the, the miraculous hand of God in bringing them out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the land of Canaan, which is the promised land. So if we're looking at Israel, we can say, wow, it's obvious how they should engage culture. But then when you move to the New Testament, and you see that the church is a body of believers, it's a group of people who come out of every nation, every tongue, every tribe, and we are not the, there is, uh, we're not this unified ethnic group, okay? We're not unified by ethnicity, we're not unified by region. We're not unified by tradition. We're not unified by um, any of the markers that you would normally use to identify a certain people. What we are unified by is the gospel, that Jesus came to this earth as the God-man. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. 
he was unjustly condemned to die, and he did die a painful and horrific death on the cross of Calvary. He literally died, and he was literally buried in the ground. And as a result of his sacrifice, the blood that he shed, God accepted that as a payment for sin. And so that anyone who would call upon the name of Jesus and say, please forgive me, God, for I have sinned against you and against your word, and I am trusting that Jesus' blood is sufficient to pay the price for my sin, God will grant that request. He will offer the forgiveness, and the person will be declared righteous. They will no longer be lost and condemned in their trespasses and sinned, but they will be washed, they've been regenerated, they have been created a new creature in Christ. And obviously the most important part of the whole gospel is that Jesus conquered death by being raised from the dead on the third day by the power of God the Father. And so we believe all of that to be true, and those who are Christians are identified together by their common belief in that particular message. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 communicates the essential nature of the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection in establishing for Christians an object that confirms their faith. If Jesus didn't die, I'm sorry, if Jesus didn't rise up from the dead, if God had not raised him up, then what hope do we have of being raised up from the dead? But because Jesus was raised up from the dead, we too have hope of being raised up from the dead. You see, this is what unites Christians, and this is what makes the question a more difficult question. If all Christians come from these vast and different cultural backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds and tribal traditions, how then do we relate to or even engage the culture that we grew up in? How do we do that? Should we do that? These are essential questions. These are questions that have been answered very differently by very brilliant men throughout the course of history. And I guess this is just basically an introduction to the series. I want to share with you some theology that I've really been studying, because if you're in the United States of America, like I am, we're coming up on a political season that is going to be vitriolic, probably more so than any other political season that we've ever had. And I think that as Christians, our tendency is to just like, let's stay out of politics. Let's not do that. That's, that's just not for us. We don't need that. Okay, you know what? Politics might be the one way that we are really able to engage our culture. Obviously, we preach the gospel. Obviously, we should see people converted. But I think that for us to just kind of ignore political happenings and engagement, that's really the public sphere. And as Christians, we need to push for people who are in the public sphere, who will actually speak Judeo-Christian principles and values and truths into the 
ideas of or into the faces of the secular world. We need to have somebody or a group of somebodies who are willing to speak Judeo-Christian values and truths into the secular world in which we live, and they need to stand on those. And it, and this is an important topic because as we get ready to vote on a variety of people and issues, we need to choose people and issues that we need to choose people, first of all, who have a Judeo-Christian worldview. Hopefully there are some remaining. And we need to choose issues that are clear um, truths that we can find in the Word of God. And we need to take a stand on those verbally, publicly, so that people don't just overlook us, so that we don't seem like we're nothing in terms of how we relate to the culture. All right, we, we, need to, we need to be invested in this culture because it's part of our obligation according to Genesis chapter 1. All right, and so this, as an introductory episode, hopefully kind of whets your appetite for the Christian and his relationship to culture. I will be working on publishing more episodes that go deeper into the theology of this. Um, I would invite your questions or your comments, so if you have them, please leave them at the bottom of the episode or email me at uh, mrjed, M-R-J-E-D, 2007 at gmail.com. Email me, and I'd be happy to answer and address the questions that you have. And to be quite fair, I'm, I'm really thinking through these things myself and trying to understand what is my responsibility as both a Christian, okay, and as a pastor, one who leads God's people. All right, well, thank you so much for your time today. I pray that your mind and heart has been stirred, and I pray that you will get into the Word of God and start to think about and roll these thoughts over or roll this idea over in your mind so that you can be better informed and have stronger convictions about how to relate to the culture in which we live. Thank you so much. God bless you.